How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 81. 81. The big 8-1. Now, Zeke. It's the reverse of 18. It is too. Yeah. Are we 18 years old, Zeke? No. No? Oh, well, fair enough. We uh, are. Oh, let me just put... I got all this crap on you, Zeke. Yeah, you're like real tangled up there, it looks like. You got a laptop on you, <laughs> putting some headphones down. I know. And I'm you're ready to, to do a podcast. I'm trying to sort all this madness out. Yeah, it's been a bit of a, a comp- not as easy as some previous weeks, but in terms of setups. But we are here and we're ready to do a podcast. We keep, we keep experimenting. Got to keep it fresh. Yeah, well, you know, we've hit eighty-one, so we might as well try and freshen up <laughs> the, the yeah. podcast partnership. Exactly, our, our partnership together, you and I. Yes. Now nearly... for eighty-one. Yes. I teased. I said yesterday or last week or the week before. I wanted to do something in regards to the number. Okay. Because I, I always feel I'm like, what do I say when you when you announce the number? I just repeat yeah. you like a like a baboon, uh, like a monkey. Do baboons repeat. <laughs> what <laughs> people? Apparently, apparently, I I guess so. Okay. So, <laughs> um, what are you doing with the number eighty-one? I've decided at least until one hundred, mm-hmm. because this might be hard to do after a hundred. I've taken a film quote or or a small bit of dialogue. Mm-hmm. From in this case, a film from 1981. Okay. And I feel like we're going to do it every year and oh, every year, every week. <laughs> I'm sure you could find some film-related knowledge that breaks into the hundreds. Yeah, I'm. I'm it'll probably have to be different because I can't really do 2000 or 2001 for 101. Maybe I could actually. Mm-hmm. No, but then it, then we'll run out at like 20, 120, yes. 121 because we'd already be in 2021. I'm sure you'll be able to find something. <laughs> the math is confusing. You're right. Something will happen. But until then, I have a quote for you. A little bit of a dialogue exchange. Now, okay. this I have purposely made it a little tricky. So if you want to guess which film it is, I would be pretty surprised if you got this right. Okay. So we're going to go for it. <clears throat> All right. So the quote from a 1981 film. Jesus, that's terrible. That's a terrible scream, Jack. What catch did you have to strangle to get that? The one you hired. That's her scream. You mean you didn't dub that? That's the quote. I believe this is Blowout. Woohoo! Very nice. Um, the 1981 Brian De Palma film Blowout. You were correct. Um, see, I thought... it. I mean, it makes sense, the quote, but I thought it's just in the back of your head, that film. Yeah. Well, we watched that film in... In class, yeah. In class. In one of our lectures. Yeah. Once upon a time, many a years ago. That's why I picked it, because I, I was for sure we had both seen it in class. Yeah. So, but that was pretty fun. That's a yeah, fun yeah. fun little knick-knack you brought yeah. to the show. So next week we do 1982. Yeah, okay. Keen to see what comes out of that. But until then, what have you watched in movies in this past week, Jake? Uh, not a huge amount. Mm. Yes. I finished Efforts for Family, which we okay. talked about last week. And um, How did you feel about seasons, I believe you were only up to season four. two, so yeah, yep. let's go with three and four. Um, I really liked it. I mean, it, I definitely agree with you, it does get better, like the, the narratives, because it's all progressing forward, like it, mm-hmm. the, the narratives all building on top of each other, so um, unless it was just like really bad, it couldn't have been like worse, like, oh, this is really, well, that's, that's probably unfair, like it mm. obviously could have gone wrong and i think i think it doesn't i think it, all the narrative threads are really strong and i like where they take all the characters and you know frank and sue and all that stuff yeah. and especially marine i was talking about last week 
I like that they're sort of honing in on, on her tomboyness, and I'm glad. Precisely, that, yeah. Yeah, and, and the fact that like, oh, well, she's a bit of a computer nerd in this, and they even sort of directly address the the Billy Jean King battle with the sexist thing. They do their own version of that, mm-hmm. which was actually really clever because yeah, that's within a year of that actually happening. Oh, that's so, pretty uh, cool. Yeah, based on the timeline of the show, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and what I realized because we talked last week about whether the show progresses, like, do the characters age? And yes. I feel like they actually do. The reason we kind of didn't couldn't really figure it out last week is because the show, four seasons in, we still haven't even elapsed one year yet. Because we start in winter, and then the yeah. third season's about the following summer. And then it's a couple of months after that. Yeah, so. I, guess, I guess so. But at the end of the day, the, the kid is born. So we know at least... Right, that's a good point. Nine months because she finds out she's pregnant between seasons two and three precisely so we know that at the very minimum towards the end of season four we got to be close to a year just because of pregnancy that's actually the the pregnancy timing so you're probably pretty close it's probably pretty close to about a year yeah hopefully season five is like christmas again and then they sort of address that yeah. Because the characters do age. So Kevin turns 15 at one point. I think Bill turns 12 at one point. Like mm-hmm. It's very subtle, but those scenes are in there. Man, a lot happened. A lot, a happened. lot does happen. Yeah. But, um, no, I really, I really like the show a lot. I think it's really great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very keen for season five. I like that it seems to be uh, no real sign of it slowing down. So that's good. I hope not. I did look this up, you know, what's happened with season five. I think COVID's probably throwing everything in a bit of a wrench because this only yeah. came out like a couple of months ago this fourth mm-hmm. season um, so we don't know yet but I, the assumption you're right is that there will be a fifth season probably in a year and a half yeah now. yeah it's normally about a year to a yeah. year and a half um, with okay. Netflix shows um, I think it's probably got a better chance of being uh, on the cards in terms of sh- shows that get another season simply because animations probably given the current situation of of America, it's probably more attainable. To, right, it's easier to do animation because you could always action. well, you could always outsource it to other mm. nations like Australia that has a really big animation yeah, uh, outlet. So if they really wanted to push that show, I'm sure they could uh, find a uh, workaround for it. Whereas if you've got shows like Glow and stuff that have had three, four seasons but are all live action, right. they're probably going to be put on hiatus for a little bit longer. I think Glow got some uh, nominations this past week for Emmys. Oh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. I didn't like the third season as much as oh, no. previous seasons, but I will watch season four when it comes out. So, yeah. Fingers crossed it's soon. Well, unfortunately, yeah. I've done now my second consecutive week of seeing nothing but the film of the week. <laughs> um, I've just been watching How I Met Your Mother casually. I've, you know, had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life, as, as you know, Jake. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I know too much. I've seen, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's been a real intense last month on that front. And unfortunately the, the thing that's been compromised in that is me watching a lot of films. So, um, hopefully this week I'll really start to try and clock some more films back in. But the way I see it is as long as you, you get the film of the week in, um, everything else is sort of just excess. I mean, I've seen over 200 new films this year and documentaries, Ooh. so... Um, I'm getting there. I'm almost at 200. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully I'll be able to make a quick recovery and push to 
get 365 by the end of the year, I should mm. have a strong run home. Right. So that's going to be what I'm kind of banking on. So It's interesting you say that because I actually did the math on that yesterday. Now that we've turned into August, mm. how many movies I need to watch, at least feature-length films, I need to watch per month mm-hmm. to the end of the year to get to 365. Although, would it be 366 because it's a leap year? Eh, let's give ourselves eh. a day, Grace. <laughs> Yeah, we, we wanted to spend the 29th of February relaxing, everybody. Exactly. Um, no, I'm at 40 per month, so I have to watch 40 features a month. It's still from, not terrible. It's not terrible. It's achievable for sure. Yeah. Especially I mean, for me. You get a <laughs> you get a good day. Like, there were days I'd watch three or four a day. So it's like, mm. um, it really just depends on, on mental state and preparation. And it's like, in the past week, you went and saw... Uh, mm. Back to the Future, all three of them did, in I a did. cinema. I so, cinema. even though you've already seen those films, so technically they they don't count towards they new do, films. They do not count, no. But it, it right now is a really good time to with a lot of the screenings because there's such limited new releases. Yeah. To squeeze in some of these classics you may have missed. I know you hadn't. You'd already seen Back to the Future, obviously, but mm. um, Lord of the Rings is probably going to have a run. Bef- oh, that's a good point. Um, I the Dark Knight trilogy will be yeah coming up soon. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Won't yeah. We? Oh. So but, I think um, no, you're right. There's plenty. I know there's an Alien plus Aliens double screening next Monday at Luna. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I'm only mentioning that because I'm not going to mention it at the end of the show. But you're right. Like I've only seen one of those two films. Yeah. So that'll be a great chance for me. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's it, it's still doable. It's just yeah, obviously. Um, the key focus every week is to get the film of the week yeah. done because that's the big part of the show. And I mean, there were, there've been times even in this year where we've watched between the two of us, 15, 16 films a week and that the segment ends up becoming more <laughs> very dot, bloated, yeah. becomes very dot pointy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'll hopefully sneak a couple in the upcoming week. Absolutely. I mean, look, take care of yourself first. Yes. Right. That's fine. Don't watch the Kissing Booth two, if it's gonna deteriorate. I watched half of it. I watched oh, half of it with. Does that count as a half film? Well, I'm going to wait until <laughs> I'm going to finish it. Sadly, um, I'm sure with when uh, I'll get another opportunity. Um, but it was really bad, and it was uh... way less coherent than the first one. And I hated. I think the first one was easily the worst film I watched last year. So. Kind of makes this one even worse by proximity. Yeah, I was telling you because I've, I've seen it, of course. Uh, if if Jack comes back and the, we want to do like a marathon of the first two, I'd be happy to watch both of them with you. I but, um, will not. <laughs> no, <laughs> be happy to watch that. Okay, that, that's fair enough because I, I remember I just read a review on Letterboxd and I was telling you about this last night where the review was just a list of films that are shorter than the Kissing Booth 2 <laughs> and it was like, La La Land, uh, 12 Angry Men, Sunset Boulevard, Back to the Future, like all of these classics. <laughs> That's really bad. Uh, so uh, what else did you catch in the last one? Yeah, well, as you said, Back to the Future, I think that was it for me. Really? Yeah, I didn't catch a lot of new films this week. Yet. But i got to say, watching Back, because I, I love Back, I think the first one was one of the best films ever made. Mm-hmm. And I've never, of course, I've never seen them in a theatre, because these films date back to the 80s. I think it, this year's the 30th anniversary of the third film. Wow, so in 1990, yeah, crazy. So, neither of us. How were born. how <laughs> was three consecutive screenings in a row? How did that feel? It was shockingly easy. 
Like to because because they are very consumable films though. They are very. I think it's like I did the math. It's like five hours and forty minutes, roughly. Those films. Okay, so it's not. It's not a huge marathon. No, no it's not too bad. But they're also very easy. I find them very easy. I've always found them very mm. easy films to watch. They they fly by. They die. They really do. Particularly the first two really fly by. Yeah. Um. And I I still really like the third one, but it is definitely obviously the weakest of the three. I think part of the reason they fly by, and and you're right, the third, especially watching it back to back mm. to back, and it was really weird having the same people watch the first two and then a whole new crowd coming for the third. That was a weird... Yeah. I couldn't interpret and I had to tell a bunch of kids to shut up during the film, <laughs> which was fun. It confu- but... Yeah, it does confuse me. Also, the f- them being... Uh, you said they were like 10-year-olds. Yeah, they were like they were snickering out of the kissing scenes and stuff so, with Doc and... and that's um, really interesting. What's her name? Because I couldn't imagine 10-year-olds watching back to the future and liking it well i i mean i was probably 10 when i first watched back to the future and i adored yeah. it but that third one especially because it was a western i wasn't a huge western guy when i was a kid mm. so i really like the third one i think i've yeah. actually probably i probably would be fair to say i think i watched the third one the most okay i wouldn't uh, from a obviously from a cinephile point of view it's the weakest of the three but i think it's the one i watched the most i always think the second one's my favorite but that's mm. that's just me. I think it's I think I like the second one for its f- the first act mostly because they All go, the to, go stuff. To, yeah they go to twenty fifteen. It's funny because I I remember this when I watched the marathon. I was like oh yeah I actually watched Back to Future two on October twenty sixth twenty fifteen. Like that's we actually cool. watched it the day it took place in. I was like oh that's, that's neat. That's pretty cool. Well I guess then uh, it's time yeah. for us to move into the next segment of the show, which is career stuff. If you have anything to add, Jake. Um, I, I think the, the, what I'll mention this week is we did have our Amplify Perth, or I should say Clicker Productions had a little spot on Amplify Perth this past week, the radio station. Mm. Uh, so that was pretty neat. We talked about this very podcast. Yeah. On the show. I got to get a recording because I do, men- I mentioned your full name. My full my, name. My boy, Zeke Morgan. Yeah. Co-host of the Cinema Side. So how did, how did you go about getting that opportunity? Well, one of the guys who was a host of that particular segment yes. is our boy Stephen O'Zane, who's a uh, I've worked with on a couple of films. Yeah, and uh, you're close with as well. Disconnected. Uh, we did a uni film. I can't even remember what the film's called. The waiting, <laughs> oh, waiting room. room. Thank you. Like okay, you remembered before, <laughs> before I remembered. <laughs> um, so that's yeah, so we been pretty exciting. Times. Yeah, no, it was awesome, and um, yeah, spread the word. Maybe we'll have more listeners this week. So. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, that's a cool... That was fun. Cool I can't say I've got anything to add to my career section, so I guess it's time to move into the film of the week. Do you want to make a new segment just called, like, the personal drama segment? No, no. <laughs> we can fill that up, can't we? <laughs> Definitely could. But, it, you know, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, mm. what are we watching? This week on the show, we are watching Baby Teeth. Is this a style? I was going for rat's tails. You look like a different person. What have you done with my daughter? I killed her. <laughs> oh my god. <clears throat> what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You make a habit of befriending girls that are significantly younger than yourself. Oh my god! Mila's obsessed with that boy. She's a smart girl. Mila? That boy has problems! So do I! What are you looking at? Piss off. Directed by a fellow Australian, Shannon Murphy, Baby T follows a seriously ill teenager 
who falls for a small-time drug dealer whom her parents disapprove. However, this blossoming romance sparks a new lust for life in her. Dun, dun, dun. It's an Australian film. Yeah, I forgot that we made films. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. No, honestly, um, this is really cool. We got to see this last night at Hoyt's um, in an empty cinema. Completely empty. And I think we've only had that happen to us... A couple of times. Only a couple of times. So. Green Book. Yeah. If, if you were, and I, I mean, this is probably a bit little egotistical now, but it's like, it would be cool if anyone on the production of this film was listening to the podcast. Don't be like, oh, no one watched the film. It's like, well, the last film we watched was Green Book. That Which had no a... audience, and that won the best picture Oscar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what happens? Yeah, I think, to be honest, there's this certain, uh, and we've talked about the impact that obviously the event of 2020 have left on, mm. you know, the whole cinema industry in general. And obviously with Australia, um, were Australia. at a point, you know, even in more contemporary I- ideologies, um, the rest of Australia is not doing as well as where we are in Western Australia. So Ooh. we're actually one of the few states in our own country that you can actually go to a cinema right now. And even here where everything's a little bit more chill and we're a little bit, uh, you know, we're in a better place than most places of the world. There's still an apprehension to an extent. Right. Even in, I think our mentality from like, you know, we have our live sporting events where you're allowed this, you know, our major stadium here is allowed up to 30,000 people, but they haven't gotten past 25,000 people. And I think most people are still pretty apprehensive to go to the cinema, let alone, uh, a bit of a shame. It is. And I also think this film suffers what a lot of Australian films suffer, Jake, in terms of marketing. I think okay. we've we've got to see a, quite a few trailers of this film, but that's because we go to Luna. Whereas I think when I'm talking marketing, I'm talking posters on buses and you know billboards and and even just mainstream free to air TV advertising. I haven't seen a single trailer of this on on, right. on the telly well that's the tricky thing because like even if i think about like what I, what ads i've seen on tv for stuff it's like other than you know the big temple marvel films you see a lot of those on tv and stuff um and then maybe the occasional like maybe jojo rabbit got some mm-hmm. good marketing um other than that it's like it is quite rare and and to your point yeah i've i've have seen australian films with uh, bigger marketing campaigns like go even saw, even saw, Rams, I've seen way more Rams. for Rams that uh, I saw Ram, that Ram trailer three times at the back. Of the yeah, but I have actually seen <laughs> marketing for that outside. Interesting. Okay. Um, and even when I think like last year was it Storks that had quite a few Storks. Was that a Storks film? I think so, or it might have been New Zealand. But it... what the animated film? Are you no. talking about Storm Boy? Storm Boy. That's it. Right. Beg my pardon. Storks. Sorry. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different thing. Um, but obviously this is not going to suffer as much as something like Danger Close did because obviously Danger Close had a lot of money put into it and didn't make right. anything back in return, whereas this is, from from the get-go, felt like a much more smaller intimate production. Well, it's it, yeah, I definitely agree. Like It's it's a smaller scale where it's, it's sort of a more localised drama. It's not a war film. No. There's not a lot of you know crazy special, special effects going into it. Um, it's actually more akin to something like Hounds of Love, which is a film we both adore, mm-hmm. um, and different uh, topics for sure. But yeah. uh, in terms of the size of the production, it, it wouldn't be far to say it was probably similar. 
Yeah, in, in budget. I think Hounds yeah. of Love's budget was 1.8 or 1.7 okay. million. So um, I'm going to quickly check if the Baby Teeth budget is public. Yeah, it's tricky to find some of that stuff. But um, obviously, yeah, I would say that this film was much closer in terms of that sort of scale and budget. And yeah. it's a pretty... I mean, we've kind of been avoiding how we felt about the film. We've just been describing sort of the context of us <laughs> watching it. Um, obviously we love when we get the opportunity to go to a public cinema and there's no one there because it means that our experience becomes just us in the film. Right. And yeah. And (laughs) obviously it's not for every film that you, sometimes you do actually love having an audience there for the right film. Hmm. This is one of those films that I've really enjoyed the fact that I only got to see it with just you because it's not one of those films that I would want to have some moppet on his phone in the middle of it, or or some giggling ten year olds, yeah, you know, it's right. uh, it's the, it's not that kind of film, and for that reason, I think its experience was very enjoyable, and I mean, I think it's why I I and you really enjoyed this film. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so the start of this film did premiere at Venice last year. Yep. Um, so it sort of got it. I maybe that's where maybe there's not so much of it a marketing push, but definitely in the inner circle. This is definitely a big deal um, in terms of Australian cinema, but you're right. The fact it was really cool to watch it just the two of us because obviously it's something that we're, we're not going to like talk for the whole film, but we are able to sort of vocalize their feelings, um, especially when a certain cat in Python starts playing at one point. Yeah, we get very yeah. excited about that. As as probably <laughs> the viewers at this point know, we are big cat empire fans. So hearing 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 an actual song in a in a movie with them was pretty awesome so that's a peak australia cinema right oh there, yeah I think. and i think that right that <laughs> that really shows the sort of the love that this shannon murphy has mm. for australian stuff i'm pretty sure a lot of the artists were all australian uh based artists so. yeah i would love to check that uh it definitely like felt that. The, i said this to you i think maybe a quarter or maybe a third of the way in it didn't feel like a film that I would normally get to see in Australia, and that's what I really liked about it. Mm. Um, it felt uh, it felt artistic without sounding pretentious or anything like that. And it, you know, because for me, it's like Australian cinema is such an interesting, you know, to approach it as a form of literature is, is sort of a, it's it's an oddity because a lot of the best or most notable Australian films are ones that really poke fun at the sort of the Australiana image. Yeah, well, even um, the Rams trailer we were talking about, I don't know, what's the, is that the name of the film, Ram? Or yes. Ram? Okay. Yeah. Um, even that, like, we were joking about how Australian is, like, the accents and the outback look and everything. And you're right, this film, it feels more keen to something like a ladybird. Yeah, whereas, like, um, yeah, bang on. Because, like, you know, you even think of things like... Uh, like Rams, which is a more contemporary example. You go back to things like The Castle or mm. um, Strictly Wedding has and, the thick accent. Yeah, and Strictly Ballroom, where it's like they're very, like, oh, we're really dialing the Australian up to 11. Whereas this, if you're not careful, apart from the accents, it doesn't feel necessarily like an Australian film. There are mm. moments of kind of uh, nature, uh, like natural beauty and showcasing sort of the the visual elements, but it definitely just feels like a film that's set in Australia, but it's not really necessarily about Australians. The story is a bit more universal, I think. Yeah. Well, it definitely focuses on, on this character, you know, terminally or teenager and sort of the, mm. 
surrounding family and friends that she has and the experience. I felt like, because this isn't a film that is very upfront about its, like, themes, really. No. It sort of plops you into this story. I was even surprised. They're like, oh, okay, we're starting maybe 20 minutes into the other version of this film in a more stereotypical version yeah. of this film where it's like, oh, they're going to show the diagnosis and we learn this. It's like, no, it kind of plops you into the initial meeting between, you know, Miller and Moses. Mm-hmm. And you're right from there, it, it very much focuses on that more so than the background, the Australiana of it. You know, it does feel like the location... And it, it again, it's like we're very proud for as Australians. Like, okay, well, this is a great film that's come out of our nation. Mm. But again, it doesn't need to prioritize... His location. I think a lot of yeah, and fall for that trap. I I agree. I think um this this film uh yeah you I think you're 100 percent right there. I think this this film technically could have been you know picked up and put in any other country like you know somewhere in Italy or in Spain or anything like mm-hmm. that, and the story wouldn't have changed. But the fact that something this sort of artistically sound and and you know, explore like deep and 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 insightful um, came out of Australia. It makes it, you know, I think I've only ever watched an Australian film with this sort of level of sort of artistic flair one other time, like off mm-hmm. the top of my head. You know, that doesn't just poke. And I'm not saying those films like The Castle and Strictly Borum and Mura's Wedding aren't great films, but mm. they very much accentuate that they're Australian films. Whereas this one. It, it moves past that very quickly. Right. Um, and apart from it literally only, you know, having Australia as the backdrop, it doesn't, the story's kind of universal. And that's what makes this film like that much more sort of, you know, internationally recognised. And it's really good that it got um, the nod it did at Venice because mm. it got the, it got a Golden Lion nod, didn't it? Uh, a nom? It definitely didn't win it. I know that. No, nah, because Joker won it. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually not sure where it landed on that front. That would have been awesome if it did. I know it was at Venice. I know the... So the young man who actually plays Moses. Let me get the name up here. So Toby Wallace. I think he actually got an award for like Best Young Actor at Venice. So that, that would have been a huge one because he's also a local Australian actor as mm-hmm. well. Um, but yeah, definitely left an imprint there. And you know, when I think about other films, you know, like um, yeah, it you know, got- Call Me By Your Name, it's like the, the locations, are they just add extra flavor. And when I think of this film... And it's Australian art, Australian honoress, is even if that's a word. It's in like the you know the outfits that they wear to school. It's the fact that you know tenth grade has their own sort of dance. Uh, it's those little details that add that flavour to it, and I think that's what makes this film special. In yeah, so it, to its it got um, the Silver Lion nominations, Silver Lion for I Best see, Director, okay. Grand Jury Prize nomination, and Golden Lion nomination. So very nice. That's uh, that's some pretty high accolades. From a very prominent artistic film festival, so and for a debut as well, it's a first that's, feature. That's awesome. Scary. I was <laughs> <laughs> pretty proud. Um, so obviously we haven't spent too much time talking about the film specifically. We've just been talking about sort of the context around it. Mm. But um, yeah, I think that you're you're right. Like the fact that they kind of skip past the diagnosis and we sort of get jumped straight into the world. And if anything, that accentuates the purpose of the film is more focused on relationships. And I think we talked about it a little bit. Uh, I I can see parallels between this and Shirley in the sense that interesting. Um, it's a very strong f- uh, f- front four mm. taking up. Um, obviously, you talked about Miller and Moses, and then you've got uh, the uh, parents of Miller, Henry uh, and Anna. 
who um, are also pretty prominent characters because after we see the first interactions between Miller and Moses, uh, we immediately cut to the dynamic between uh, a a psychiatrist and a patient, which is also husband and wife, which is odd in its own right. Um, (laughs) Totally not a conflict of interest. Um, No, not at all. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, And sort of the dynamic between all four is is important throughout the whole film. Um, But it... It's interesting. Um, I've always been. I'm, I really enjoy films that give you a showcase of four characters that are more complex than just their relevance to the plot. Mm. Um, and I think this film, like Shirley, did it. Um, although Shirley had a more streamlined goal, whereas this one doesn't have such a streamlined goal. I think at the end of Shirley, you you looked back on it and was like, oh well, you can see why, you know, one character did certain things to another character, and um, you know we talked about that sort of like the the sacrifices as a manipulation of one another for art, whereas in this case it's very much just uh, the exploration of relationships in a person's life. Well, my main takeaway. Because it is, you're right, there's definitely an ensemble. I think, first of all, I think the casting and the actual performances are excellent in this film. Yeah, I can't think of a bad one. There's not a weak link. There is not. It's like, this is my favourite um, ensemble. And I know, I don't think the Oscars don't have their own ensembles, but there are definitely other award shows that do. And I know, like, Parasite and Knives Out were sort of headrunners in that. I would love to see this film be a headrunner this year. Because um, even yeah. more than Shirley, not even just those four, you're right. The entire, not a weak link. Adam. No, and such a di- yeah, like an excellent, this film. interestingly uh, diverse cast, mm. but just and that's another one of those real subtle um, sort of Australian imprints. Obviously, we're a very multicultural country, so to have such a and not even acknowledge it, but just such a natural uh, diversity in your cast mm. was a really good way of kind of putting that Australian, very subtle Australian footprint on this story um, from everything to do with costume design and the way that characters are constructed um, to the vast uh, spectrum of ethnicities and ages and cultures um, I thought was really clever. Um, Yeah. Well, again, it just adds that flavor of what makes this story unique compared to other stories that may be similar to this. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously not, um, you know, sort of caving to sort of stereotypes and stuff. It was very much just like, well, this is just the situation, you know. Like, this is this is what Australia is. It's this diverse range of characters and people all sort of interacting with each other and being involved in each other's lives in mm. smaller parts or larger parts. And I, I really like that. I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It all, I think, in even in regards to what you were saying about how the point of these interactions, the point of all these characters and where it's sort of all going. I feel like everything about this film points to one's agency in their own life. And of course, this is in Miller and the fact that she's a very young girl, but there's a lot of characters around her, specifically her parents, who are saying, you can't date Moses, you can't, this is someone who's way older than you, who's quite dangerous, who has ulterior motives. And this is something that, it's interesting because our point of view on their relationship is so skewed by that first scene. We're introduced to their meeting and we almost immediately see why they're infatuated with each other, especially her to him. Mm. Uh, but we do repeatedly see time and time again that he's you know, sort of stealing from her and he's manipulating her and doing these things. He is a drug dealer or a drug uh, user. 
either yes. one. Um, this is someone who is, I don't, well, I wouldn't say he's dangerous, but he's definitely, we see sides of him that it's like, ah, oh, is this good for her? But it's well, all in service of how much time does she have left and, and what does she want as an individual? And what are these parents, to what extent are they going to do to let her have the life that she wants? It almost feels essentially like um, this film is just talking about um, those who are kind of like, I like your comparison to saying it's about the agency we have of, of, of our own lives. Mm. Um, and I find it very prompt that uh, it feels like it's a collection, an ensemble collection of sort of lost people um, and sort of people that have lost direction and, and meaning in, in who their own identities are and actually come together and sort of thrive being around one another for better or worse. Mm. Um, almost a reliance on one another, even though for the most part you couldn't possibly comprehend why they're all uh, together in the first place. I mean, if you look at all of the relationships, they all seem to find each other and rely on each other, but maybe not necessarily like each other, but they they find out that for some reason in order to get through their day-to-day lives, there's sort of a reliance on each other's interactions and relationships. And mm. that might call to a, a deeper meaning about how, although we often don't see the people around us, we sort of rely on the people around us to get through, even if it's just a small interaction or it's something larger, I think. Um, it's a collection of kind of, I don't want to say oddities, but they are kind of all oddities and oddballs and well, the, the different. The yeah, themselves. from whether they're from their like, uh, you know, whether it's the um, uh, small um, kid T one T one. He just hangs around. Who just skips school and starts hanging out with the group, or or the pregnant neighbor, uh, or the uh, seemingly midlife crisis psychiatrist, or the you know. The they're a collection of different characters, and on, I think at first when we meet Moses, we're meant mm. to just assume that just because of all these things, he's the only one that's got the problems. And then we sort of slowly go through this exploration of all the other characters with their own collective flaws. And Moses does not seem as as odd as when we first meet him, right? As this, so this idea, yeah, that the people they're not as I mean, I mean, you can even bring that back to the fact that, you know, parents are parents and it's like, oh, they're perfect. Until you hit that certain age and you start to understand, like, oh, though these parents have sort of issues themselves and, and you're right. This... Well, it even you can even call it into the dynamic between Moses, Mila and her parents the first time they all have dinner together yeah. and, and the mother character's high as a kite off of multiple uh, drugs that were given to her by her psychiatric husband. Right. And then, of course, that plays in later in the film in terms of sort of the power he has in able to give these drugs and these prescriptions and stuff. Mm. And, it, and it's, you're right. It, it does call into question sort of the authority that these parents should have. And you, your immediate reaction is, well, they, you know, they're her parents and then once they can care of her, they should have this authority. But you're right. It's, it's not so clear cut. Some people have no. other things going on under the skin, so to say. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's one of those films that it's, seems to have um a sense of its own impending doom um but yet you kind of get lost in how lost every character is i guess i i 
I feel like this film went. I could have lived in this the world of this film quite. It was very tangible and very real, and that might be because we're Australian, so there's a certain intimate connection to the film, no matter what. Yeah. But um, it's a it's an interesting one to sort of digest and and think about because I don't think there's one way of interpreting this film. No, I don't think either. It's definitely uh, even again with the fact that we sort of start not necessarily in the middle of the story, but it feels like there's a lot of that first act in the more traditional version of this film that, you know, exists in an alternative universe. Mm. Because that's missing, you're right, there's more interpretation leading into that. And to your point about the uh, uh, sort of the incoming doom of it all, it's interesting because I never, not for a while, I didn't get that sense. And yet it does say, if you read the logline, it does say terminally ill. Mm -hmm. So by definition... The assumption is that you know she's on her way out of this world. Yeah. But for most of the film, I was not really thinking about that. Uh, I very much cared for her as a character, but I felt like at least the first two acts, I wasn't, I didn't feel like it was heading towards you know the end of her life, so to say. And yeah. If you want to, ju- should we jump into spoilers now? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not really sure what there is to. Sp- I mean, obviously there's going to be there's something a that's very there's a couple, there's of, a couple of big ones i just for me it, it's a film that i i don't know if i'll ever because and i, I want to st- say straight up i really like this film like really yeah. liked this film um but it's not a film that i can you know we've and we've had other australian films on this show you know we had the nightingale yeah. where although there were scenes that were difficult to watch the film itself was pretty streamlined um, in terms of its uh, st- like story and plot, whereas this film constantly is jumping from place to place and is using the mostly place cards of symptoms of, of her terminal illness. Um, mm. I think it's believed that she has a cancer. Um, I think she does have cancer. Um, but, yeah, and they so the treatment, the cancer treatment she's under gives a lot of uh, different symptoms, which all tie into the the plot um but the the film focuses on multiple it's very much an ensemble performance i think um and i think what they allow us to do is they allow us to get to know all these characters to know what she's particularly who she's going to affect when she leaves when she when she eventually passes away yeah because it's almost an inevitability that's never talked about and i sort of really like that mm. in the, f- the sense that no one ever really addresses why, like what specific cancer she has or what sickness that no one, very few people mention her sickness. It's just a, f- a kind of a fact of this. It's almost like we've, like you said, we've, we've come into the conversation pretty late, you know, like she's already terminally ill. Um, there's no diagnosis. It's just, yeah. This is this. Well, we this, don't see the scene. There isn't a scene. Well, of, I, I'm sorry, you have cancer. It's not exactly. No, no essentially, we're following potentially what, what is believed to be probably the last three or four months of her life, something right. around that sort of time frame. Um, there's no discernible uh, proof of that, but you can just assume uh, through a certain characters like uh, the pregnant neighbor, who was pretty pregnant when we first meet her, and obviously ends up having point. eventually having a kid. So you would assume it's only been three, four months. Um, in the opening scene, she has her own hair and then in the following up scenes after that, 
she cuts it and then eventually it's gone completely and then she starts using wigs. This wig budget on this film, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, and so we're essentially watching the last three, four months of Mila's life. Um, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little less, um, but it's sort of... The film is just uh, a diagnosis of, of the relationships and uh, sort of uh, different facets of love whether that be a love mm-hmm. um, and what's what is like it's left behind what's left behind when eventually Mila is going to pass away and what sense you know what what's lost right. and um, I think there's a lot of different meanings of love and loss in this film in terms of layers that you could dive into this is a very essay film this film <laughs> I think well it's it's just first off I want to say that they're definitely not complaints when I talk about Oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't sense that that feeling of impending doom until okay. the last act. That's not a complaint. That's an observation and mm-hmm. editing and and tension in the in the scene. And I actually love it because it it does very naturally flow into a very emotionally raw third act. Yeah, like, that is a very raw, and I the I last. Love I think it. the last twenty five minutes of this film are probably the oh, close to, yeah. if not the best last act I've seen this year so far. Ooh, I like it. Um. Yeah, in this terms is, of this is in top terms three of for me, in terms in, of films overall this year, in terms of films that came out this year, yeah, obviously, because um, well, see, here's the thing: it it, it claims it's a 2019 film on like IMDb and Letterbox and stuff, but it's like that's not fair. It I'll concede. Venice I'll concede this is a 2020 film. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. It got its Australian release in 2020. Exactly. So that's that's normally what my go-to is on terming years. If it came out in Australia. In 2020, then it's a 2020 film. Gotcha. Um, so I yeah, I, I think the last 25 minutes, particularly the third act, and if you want to call it an epilogue, I would say it's probably an epilogue. Yeah, that that final scene is certainly an epilogue. Um, were just perfect. You mm. couldn't you couldn't from everything that was in it, from uh, the mother Anna not wanting to play music, yet she was, I believe. It sounded like, although they never confirmed it, I think she was a concert pianist. Interesting. Um, You're probably right. It's yeah. the exchange between her and the, the tutor teacher. They talk about performing. And so what I assumed that meant she was a, a former concert pianist or at least some form of performer that kind of put it all away due to her... Mm. Uh, um, it, I'm assuming some sort of anxiety disorder. She seemed to have some form of anxiety or... or uh, you know, she talked about the nerves and such like that. So, and that might have also been emphasised, obviously, with the you know the diagnosis of a daughter too. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's you know her the fact that she avoids playing until the the final act um, in a post loss song uh, film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I find that that I mean that scene was incredible. I mean that scene, the fact that all of the characters were so moved by the performance that they f- didn't even realize uh, the neighbor was a uh, giving a uh, uh, right. water broke and was ready to go to the hospital. So when, I, not even just the noticing, the fact that she herself she yeah. didn't even want to interrupt yeah. this little tiny performance to be like, oh hey, by the way, my water broke. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's such a sweet moment, and I feel like, and I, we definitely are in spoiler territory at this point. Mm. I feel like, I mean, this amazing performance from Essie Davis, who I I love in the Babadook, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll have our own thoughts on the Babadook separate from this film. 
Um, but I love her as an actress, and I think her standout, like, you know, Oscar real moment, if you will, is when she finds out that her daughter's dead, and she explodes at Moses. You know, you were the yeah. one that got to hold her in her final moments. You were the one that got to say, I didn't get to say goodbye. Yeah. And that's such a great moment. But in my head, when I watch it, it's like, your goodbye was that song. It literally was that performance. That was it, their goodbye. And when I say that this last act, probably including that epilogue, is probably the favourite one from uh, I think I've seen this year, mm. um, it really is. It's every part of that. It's Ben Mendelssohn's uh, realisation minutes before actually it's revealed that she's dead. Yeah, that that's he's a great. Like he hold just on. and it's just him. It's like it's so nice to see another film where it's like we really get to put Ben Mendelsohn at the front because he's <laughs> he's straight up. I've want to fight for this, but I think he's the best actor, current best current Australian actor. Um, Throw the balls out there. And probably for the last... Ever since... In a post-Animal Kingdom world, he has been the best since Animal Kingdom. Um, and he's just... He's perfect in this film. Like, there's not like... He he has... He can put all of his emotions... When you can read a person's face and body language and just how he silently moves into the room and he goes and says goodbye. And then his epilogue scene where he's talking... Uh, he's trying to take a photo of um, Mila, and Mila's just saying, oh, when I'm yeah. gone, look after Moses. And him trying to compose himself before the photo, and then just immediately going up to uh, his partner, Anna, yep. even though they've had multiple scenes throughout the, the, the film that their marriage is very rocky. Um, it's very much a power dynamic, and it's very clear that this whole... Uh, saga in their life has completely rocked their um family to a core to even points where um henry actually kisses the the oh the neighbor yeah yeah the neighbor um and it's it really is it's fascinating to have these characters who are so so flawed but you still feel for them and i think i'm just a sucker for messy relationships (laughs) and for sure. I mean, I even love, if we're talking about um, his character, I love the detail of just him being very specific about the photo, like the, sh- the shutter speed and stuff. He's teaching his daughter, like, mm. oh, I remember this, I remember this. It's like, um, isn't that not, like an automatic camera? No, but I, I love that little detail of his. I think uh, before we move on, um, yeah, this film's just excellent. You you claim that this is like one of the only true art house films that have come out of Australia in terms of its presentation it feels like a very artsy fartsy film yes uh, and i agree with you i think i think it really benefits from that now i i kind of have two or three different reasons in my head why i feel is that way of what the film does to mm-hmm. present itself in this artsy way um what would I, you say is sort of the example of that why this is a art house film yeah like what does this film do that makes just you... before i say that um mm. the the reason this film i like it's writing particularly its writing. The writing's it, excellent. Yes. The writing is excellent, by the way. Um, it reminds me of, and I've talked about both of these on, on the show, um, it reminded me of Jonathan Trooper's writing, who is the writer behind Kodachrome and This Is Where I Leave You. Interesting. Okay. Which both have very flawed relationships. He has, I mean, and he he's taken a lot, of, he's obviously an American writer, and he's taken kind of the American comedians like Jason Bateman and Jason Sudeikis. Yeah. 
and put them in those more serious uh, films. Um, and I really like both of those films and the writing for Baby Teeth very much reminded me of that sort of dynamic. Um, particularly, you know, in the scenes where it's like, although there's all of this tragic mess and there's a tragedy surrounding this, which is very similar to Kodachrome and uh, uh, This Is Where I Leave You, where one of them sat around a week of, at a funeral yep. for a bunch of kids' dad and Kodachrome has Ed Harris eventually dying at the end of that film. Spoiler. Um, spoiler. I think I talked about it anyway. <laughs> um, obviously, this one also centers around a tragedy and it's sort of that tragedy comedy. I mean, it comes back to the scenes where it's like when Moses is breaking into the house and he's uh, trying to fend off Anna with a meat prong. Yeah. And there's sort of just this back and forth about, do you try and stab my wife with a meat prong? <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So, sorry, um, back to your art house comment. Yeah, I so think... what does this film do that te- that makes you feel like this is an art house film? It's title. <laughs> it's title straight away. Um, well, the opening shot is a baby. The party film. scene. It really blends. Yeah. There's multiple blendings of weird sort of surrealism with realism. And it's that weird fine line where there's this sort of scene where she's she i don't think she's even consumed any alcohol at this point and she's just moving through what i can only assume is a I melbourne like she, party I, I would just yeah i'll just say i feel like she has because she does throw up in the following scene right so my assumption is she has drunk at this party okay um and she has a weird sort of ultra realistic moment with some form of artistic creature like Mm. a person who was dressed up uh, in front of a projector screen and and it's this very sort of kind of ultra realism moment of i don't know sort of some sort of reflective Mm. moment um i found that really a couple of the obviously the title cards are very uh, interestingly placed um and you know there's just multiple things that if you put them in, if I saw this out of a French film or an Italian film, I'd be like, oh yeah, it's a French or Italian <laughs> film. But you never <laughs> see anything like this film. out of Australia. I mean, the right. most most prominent artistic films that have come out of Australia, probably things like Animal Kingdom and or, you know, you know, we love Hounds of Love, but they're all centered around crime dramas or, or yeah, serial they, killer drama. And they're, or, they're represented, like it's shot very grittily. And, and this film actually does have a bit of grit to the way it's shot, which I love. But you're right, there's definitely... I mean, that scene in particular, the party, it is very surrealistic and in the sense that you don't know what's real or not when you're watching yeah. that scene. And she, you know, she's dancing with... You're right, this person that is so committed to their like character that they're dressed up, is that, is that even a real person in mm. that room? And you're right, and the lighting, and it all just goes to, to add to that idea. Um, I feel like where, where I come from in terms of like the art artsy-fartsy area is that this feels... From, from a literature point of view, this feels very strong. And when you talk about the sort of the little captions they have, and uh, this film, uh, very much like Tarantino does, it feels like it feels like a collection of singular, well-written scenes mm-hmm. that sort of come together to make a film. And that's what films are. Yeah. But uh, I feel like this film very much highlights that. And you're right, it has the little subtitles, give us a little context into, mm-hmm. into Miller's sort of headspace and uh, what introduces us into the scene. And I thought of this as akin to, yeah, like a novel. And I was curious, I'm like, is this based on a novel? And I was actually pleasantly surprised by the answer. So it technically isn't. The script was written by, I'm going to uh, butcher the name, so I apologize, Rita Kauni Jez? Or Rita, uh, Rita Kauni Jez. It's uh, one of those. 
uh, hopefully. <laughs> so she's the one who wrote the script. This is actually based on a play that she herself wrote. So that actually gives even more context to the sort of the separation of these scenes. It's like, oh, I can see them on stage. It's the breaking uh, first these down. film she uh, wrote. Oh, well, there you go. So a debut for both, both her and Shannon. Look at that. She Excellent. apparently also directed a 2020 film called Surge. Ooh. Is and that like a it. short film or? Nope, it's a full film. Oh, she directed it. No, see. and wrote it too. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, oh no, wait, she just wrote it. Begging pardon. Um, You're throwing me for a loop here. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's got a 2.9 on Letterboxd. So yeah. That's... What do you know, Letterboxd? <laughs> what does Letterboxd know? Let's be honest. Um, but no, so I was pleasantly surprised and that did actually add that extra texture I was looking for where I was like, this feels like it was based on a novel. Again, it feels uh, from a from a literature standpoint in terms of thematically exploring this idea and its presentation. You know, breaking the scenes up into these small little acts with these little subtitles that mm. go into it, um, and just the writing between the characters and the the back and forth there. It's like I could see it being a novel, but it actually makes even more sense that this was based on a play. And again, with that in mind, the fact that they had to recast, I'm assuming it's an entirely new cast from the play into this film. Just an excellent job all around. Um, the other thing I noticed before, before ready to jump into highlight scenes, yeah. um, to this sort of out, art house feel that we're talking about, there's something I noticed in regards to European filmmaking. I feel like this is a nod to Amelie. The two or three times when Miller just looks at the camera, looks at us, <laughs> the audience, and sort of gives us that little smirk or a smile. Well, it's an expression, and it's normally an expression of her mental state at the time, too. Mm. Um, particularly the last one prior to her, her dying was a small look, and then she ends up looking towards the uh, uh, daybreak and the sound of, like, uh, cockatoos in the morning. And it was yeah. very... It was a very... Astra- that was one of the few very, times I was like, yeah. that is... But it's subtly Australian. That's not... I wouldn't say that that's... Uh... If you lived in Australia, you know you know that sound. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I I have not seen uh, Amelia, but um, I can... S- s- uh, you, you brought it up as soon as she was doing it, so... Um... Yeah, I feel like that's like a poster shot anyway of Amelie sort of looking into the, into the lens with that little smirk. And in that film, it works so perfectly as like a little window into her you know, naivete mm. and her personality, which is so bubbly and perky in that way. Uh, while with, uh, with Miller in this one, it's, she had, she definitely has that attitude, but it's, it's more steeped in drama and in tragedy because of her, of her diagnosis, because of her illness. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think it's served the same purpose. I'm, I'm convinced that that is a total nod to Amelie. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Um, so that's your highlight scene? Oh, no, no, that was oh. my, like, final observation okay I suppose. okay so I you mean, want my to move highlight scene is either the party scene which we've already talked about yeah. in debt, or just any of the many conversations between mila and moses like i think their di- dynamic is actually excellent yeah especially when they're sort of talking directly about their relationship and what's he's di- what does he want specifically we know what she wants she we know that she loves him yeah but it's well we're trying to crack the nugget on his end like what does he actually want out of this friendship or relationship whatever you call it and um, I guess I guess the ones when they're on the rooftops. So this actually follows immediately after the party. Um, I just love those scenes. I love the writing. I love the performances. It's excellent. Yeah, um, I would have to say my highlight scene has got to be honestly. It's going to be bookends. It's going to be the mm. first and the last scene. Uh, I love the interaction between Moses and Mila in at the train station. The whole sequence of him 
hopping on the train, hopping off the train, hopping yeah. on the train. I really like that dynamic. That would have been hard for them to pull off too. It's really good blocking. Block well, sure. the blocking, but even just yeah, coming in and out of the train and the producers mm. being like, "Train, please stay, please stay." Or <laughs> the the final scene. I think the final mm. scene probably is, in a nutshell, the best way of establishing everyone's sort of endings. Um, the fact that Moses picks up uh, his brother Zach. It's almost like. The scene itself takes place at the beach, and it's almost like this. Well, it's like this heavenly sort of final finality to mm. it. Um, and Moses seems to have at least temporarily he's cleaned himself up, and he's starting to slowly rebuild his relationship with his little brother Zach. Um, and obviously, is acting like the, a man child, which is kind of sort of a part of his charm and his sort of immaturity yeah. and being silly and being adventurous and spontaneous and as he goes and picks up and and takes uh zach to the you know dump him in the in the ocean uh, there's this sort of final interaction between mila henry and anna um particularly mila and henry and i think that scene to me was easily one of the strongest and sort of really uh, gives um like you said at that point uh, we had already seen the farewell for Mila and, and Moses and the farewell for even um, Anna and, and Mila through the, the performance. Yeah. So well, at this point, we're flashing back from her death. Yes. To the beach. And this, if anything, was an explanation for why when Henry goes in and sort of just quietly caresses um, her, this is sort of his his farewell. And mm. he's... Obviously, I I think that this scene, and it's very much like how a book would do it, it shifts perspectives because obviously with Mila being dead, this this scene is very much a uh, almost like a memory that Henry mm. has. He knows that that is really the last major interaction he's going to have, and that was really with it was an unspoken farewell. Yeah, exactly. Just having those different versions of what a goodbye looks like, I think. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. It was a bit of a tearjerker. Even their lie. names, I... even their names, like Miller and Moses, is like, ah, oh, this feels very fate-driven. Yeah. Yeah, just their names, but yeah. No worries. Well, Baby Teeth is currently out in wide release in cinemas in Australia. That's the one. Um, and yeah, we saw it at Hoyt, so uh, even Hoyt's are giving this one a crack, which is awesome. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, go check it out. Please it go check it fantastic. out. Fantastic. Exactly. No worries, Jake. Time to move into what is new in uh, cinemas this week, and I'm <laughs> guessing streaming platforms. Yeah, like like I said, I'm I'm getting slowly and slowly more strict. Um, this is actually a pretty uh pretty slow week this week. So there's a few things coming out. If you're on Netflix this week, Work It comes out, uh, and that film sees a brilliant yet clumsy high school student transform her gawkiness through dance. Now this uh, the lead actress in this. I think it's Sabrina Carpenter, I think that's her name. She is also a supporting actress in the Netflix film Tall Girl. Mm. Uh, so that alone tells me to avoid this film at all exactly. costs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a little mean. Uh, coming to stand this week is Bradham, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is a documentary about the famous Australian Formula 1 race car champion. Okay. Uh, so I think that's a 2019 film, and a, I think it is an Australian documentary. That would make sense. Uh, so that's coming to stand. Uh, and in cinemas this week, you have Deer Skin, which sees a man obsess over a designer deer skin jacket, which causes him to blow his life savings and turn to crime. Damn. Uh, and if you're looking for a classic, we got our classics in cinemas this week. 
the Dark Knight trilogy. All three of them are coming to cinemas. I think this Wednesday they're doing a marathon. Uh, I want to just see at least the Dark Knight. I don't need to do my Back to the Future, you know, all in one marathon. Because, you know, Batman Begins, I'm not desperate to see that in the cinema. Mm. I've already seen Dark Knight Rises in the cinema. There's only one. There's only <laughs> there's only one. To yes. Yeah. Uh, also coming is uh, screenings for Goodfellas, The Little Mermaid, Pretty Woman, and Kill Bill Volume 1. I kind of want to see Goodfellas. That'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. So that's, that would be your pick of the week in terms of the classics? Yeah, especially if everyone I went with dressed up in, like, suits. <laughs> went and saw Goodfellas. That'd Shooting people in, uh, in boots and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go full mafia. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Well, Very un- nice. none of those are what we're watching next week on the show. But, no. Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching E.T. An alien is left behind on Earth and is saved by a young Elliot who decides to keep him hidden. While the task force hunts for it, Elliot and his siblings form an emotional bond with their new friend. Aw, their new friend. This film is directed by one Steven Spielberg, and I have never seen this film before. You've never seen E.T. before. Yeah, so we were like, obviously, as you heard in the previous (laughs) section... Um, we normally like to keep to contemporary new stuff if we can afford it, but obviously with all of these uh, films that are coming out, there's not really much new stuff coming out, so just a lot of reruns. Um, I thought, what the heck? We're feeling we're feeling 80s next week. Keen to see some E.T. phone I'm keen home. to finally get it off my bucket list because I feel like I'm going to get crap if I yeah, don't. Yeah, between that and Goonies, man, it's, just, it's shocking. I, I haven't seen E.T. in a very long time. It's got it um, sitting on my shelf. Waiting. Oh my god, you own it as well? Yeah. And you ha- Oh my god, man. Well, it's yeah. time to fix it. It's time to fix it next week. Yeah, I and I, I don't think I've watched a lot of Spielberg from the 80s, if I'm thinking off the top of my head. Right, interesting. You've probably seen a lot of Steven Spielberg produced films yes. in the 80s. But not, but not necessarily directing. directing. Yeah, I've seen you know his 90s stuff, Saving Private Ryan, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, Schindler's List, and then yep. seeing obviously Jaws and all that, but eighties bit of a dead patch. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So. Interesting. Well, this is certainly one of the big ones he did. <laughs> yeah. The eighties. So there we go. Yeah. So keen to get it ticked off the bucket list. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with ET, the Extraterrestrial.